Now remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text. I'm just going to read the first eight verses of John 3. Listen to the gospel of God. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but but you cannot tell where it comes from. And where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the spirit. Let's far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, because it is truth. Sanctify us by your word, by your truth, through the power of your spirit working in us. In Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. It's been said that if you want people to read what you've written, don't write about man, write about a man. In other words, if you want people to pay attention to what you have to say, don't just talk generically about mankind. Talk about a specific man, a specific person. That's what John does at the beginning of John chapter 3. The end of John 2 John writes about mankind in general. John 2.24 says that Jesus did not commit himself or entrust himself to those who were believing in him since he knew all men and he knew that they were not truly believing in him, truly following him, becoming true disciples of him. Verse 25 says, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. That's the last verse of chapter 2. But then in chapter 3, John begins to write about a particular man, a particular example of what he's talking about, a man named Nicodemus, who was among those who believed in Jesus because of the signs and followed him because of the signs, but who did not have saving faith, who needed something more. Chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. Now, until recently, we didn't really know anything about this Nicodemus other than what John tells us. But but recently, scholars have figured out who he must have been and why this conversation with Jesus would have been considered so important. I mentioned this as background to help us get... The the context, I think the context is implicit in in the text, but I'll give you this background anyway because it's interesting. Well, the name Nicodemus was a common 
Greek name, very common Greek name. It was a very extremely rare name among Jews living in Israel. In fact, between the years 330 B.C. and A.D. 200, so span of 530 years, 338 B.C., 280, our sources from that period turn up only four Palestinian Jews with the name Nicodemus. In all, in all of our sources, only four Jews from Israel with the name Nicodemus for that 530-year period. What's even more interesting is that all four of these Nicodemuses belong to the same Jewish family, the Gurion family. And what we know about this family is that they were an extremely wealthy, very prominent family. They lived in Jerusalem, and they pledged allegiance to the Pharisees. So Nicodemus was a wealthy and powerful ruler in Israel. He was born into an honorable and influential aristocratic family from Jerusalem. He was an elite ruler and Pharisee. This meant that he was at the very center of Judaism. There was no one more qualified to represent the Jews than Nicodemus. He was the representative Jew par excellence. So in this story, what we see is Nicodemus, who's the perfect representative of the Jews, coming to Jesus, who is the perfect representative of God. That's how, that's how John presents this episode, this story to us. And that background information confirms that that's what he's doing. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, the question most people ask at this point is why did Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? Perhaps we can't know for sure. The likely reason is that he was afraid that his fellow Jews would find out that he was talking to Jesus. After all, John chapter 12 and John chapter 19. We won't go into the details, but those two chapters talk about Jewish believers who believed in Jesus secretly because they were afraid that other Jews might find out what they were doing, that they were following Jesus, interested in him. But the far more interesting and far more important question is, why does John call our attention to the fact that this happened at night? He didn't have to tell us this historical detail, but he did. By doing so, John calls our attention to the, the nighttime setting in John and Nicodemus' heart. Nicodemus is spiritually in the dark. Every other use of night in John's gospel has clear negative connotations, associations. Night was when Judas went out to betray Jesus. John 13.30 Night was when the disciples caught no fish in 21 verse 3. Night is when no one can work in chapter 9 verse 4. And in 
Chapter 11, verse 10. Night is when people stumble because there is no light. Listen to John eleven ten. If one walks in the night, he, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Nicodemus is stumbling in the night. He is living in the darkness, not in the light. In the night, not in the day. Now he's come to the one who is the true light, but will he receive this light? That's the question that the text presents to us. Will Nicodemus receive Jesus and believe in his name with saving faith? Will he be one of those who is born of God? Will he become a child of God through Jesus by entrusting himself to Jesus, God's son? Or will he stick with his false faith and remain a child of the world? Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, you may you may be noticing that I'm translating. Translating it born from above instead of born again, which is what most of our translations say. The Greek word is onothen and onothen can mean either again or most of the time, from above. The oldest English translations, the Wycliffe Bible, the the old King James Bible, they translate this word as again, and most of our modern English Bibles follow suit. It's become uh, sort of entrenched in, in our Bible translations. But the better translation is from above. John uses this same word three other times in his gospel. And all three times it means from above. One of those three usages is in John 3 itself. Later in John 3, the same chapter, you look at John 3 verse 31. It refers to Jesus as he who comes from above. Everyone agrees that the word means from above there and. That's what it means in verse 3 and verse 7. Jesus is talking about a birth that is from above, from heaven, from God. To be born from above is to be born of God. And, And you remember John introduced us to this concept of the new birth back in chapter 1. You can flip back real quick to John 1 and look at John 1 verse 12. But as many as receive him... To them, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. And then verse 13 talks about the new birth. He says that God's children were born, are born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So being born from above is simply another way of talking about being born of God or from God. So what Jesus is saying in chapter 3, verse 3, is that unless God is your father, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. 
unless you are born from above of God, you cannot experience salvation. Unless you are born of God, you will not be saved. You will not go to heaven when you die. If you are not born from above, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will go to hell. That's what verse 3 means. And we need to make sure we appreciate the gravity of what Jesus is saying here. Eternity hangs in the balance when we're talking about the new birth. Eternity hangs in the balance when we are talking about the new birth. Because there are two types of people in the world. People who are born from above and people who are not. There are people who are born of God and people who are not. One will enter, has entered the kingdom of God. One will enter hell. And so this raises the, the question. That the gravity of this raises a, an important question. How do I know if I'm born from above? Can I know? And how do I figure out if I'm born of God? How do I know that I'm a child of God? Well, I want to say up front that it's not hard. This is not a mystery. This is not something that you cannot have assurance about. You can have strong assurance that is grounded in Christ. Your own salvation should not be a mystery to you. That's not the goal. That's not the point. I know I am born of God because I have received him as Lord, because I believe in his name. We could put it that simply, according to John 1, 12 and 13. I know I'm a child of God because I know God personally as my father. I know that God is my heavenly father the same way I know that my earthly father is my earthly father. I have a relationship with him. I know that I am begotten of God because I have received the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of adoption, Paul says in two places, who causes me to cry out to God as Father. I experience that. I know that. That same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with my spirit, Paul says, telling me that I am a child of God, confirming that to me. And I know that I am God's son because the same spirit leads me. I am led by him. I don't follow him perfectly, but I am led by him. Listen to Romans 8, verses 14 to 16. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of of adoption, sonship, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's one angle on how we know. I also know I am begotten from above because I believe in Jesus and because that faith that I have in the Son of God overcomes the world. I read 1 John 5, 1 to 5 last week. I'm going to read it again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. That's John saying that. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, your faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? There's another angle on how you know you're a son or a daughter of God. You don't determine whether you are a child of God by looking into unsolvable mysteries. By looking back to some spiritual experience that you might have had in the past. If you... If you've had some kind of dramatic conversion experience like Paul, that's great. That's wonderful. But you should not interpret that or lean on that or be presumptuous because of that right now. There's no magic prayer that makes someone born of God being begotten from above is not a one-time experience that gives you spiritual warm and fuzzies. You don't determine whether you're begotten of God by looking to some past experience, at least not primarily. Most faithful children of God, most faithful Christians throughout the history of the Christian church have not had any dramatic spiritual experiences that they can stand on or that they should stand on. That's not how you know you belong to God. So don't compare yourself to someone else who has had some kind of experience or who did walk an aisle or say a prayer. And don't don't compare yourself on either side of that aisle. No, you know that you belong to God because you know God is your father right now. Because you're trusting in his son, Jesus Christ, right now. Because you are on the vine and bearing much fruit right now. Because the spirit is bearing witness to your spirit right now. Because you're looking to the cross and to the cross alone right now. Because you're keeping in step with the Holy Spirit Right now. You know you are born of God. Because you are overcoming the world. And finding victory over sin. Because you are obeying the commandments of Christ. Which John says are not burdensome. Right now. Because you are loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Right now. Because you are walking in the light. Instead of the darkness. Right now. It doesn't matter what happened to you 10 years ago. It doesn't matter what kind of emotional encounter with God you thought you had last year. It doesn't matter how on fire for the Lord you seem to have been at another time in your life. It only matters that you are trusting Christ right now. Are you obeying Christ's word and taking up your cross right now? Are you believing in Jesus and overcoming the world 
right now? Are you producing the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 right now? If so, then those are the sorts of things that God tells you that you can look to as confirmation. Now, underneath all of this, the ground of all of this, the thing you look to first and last and all the way through the middle at the same time you're doing all these other things is to Jesus, to his cross, to his righteousness, and to his righteousness alone. No amount of obedience, no amount of fruit can save you. You're not saved because you're walking in the Spirit. That's not what transferred you from darkness to light. You didn't do anything to do that. God did it. God did it through Jesus, through his blood. He gave you the faith that united you to Jesus. But once you are saved, Once God transfers you from darkness to light, you will bear fruit. You will do these other things. On the other hand, if you're not being led by the Spirit, then repent. Make your election sure by fearing God and obeying Him. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So what's Nicodemus talking about here? First, let's make clear what I don't think Nicodemus is talking about at all. He's not asking Jesus sarcastically, whether it's possible for a man to crawl back inside his mother's literal literal womb and be born a second time. That would have been a sarcastic question. That is some, how some people interpret what's going on here, but I'm not convinced that he was being sarcastic at all. I think this fails to look at the, the background, the Old Testament background to this conversation. And so to figure out what Nicodemus is asking, we need to first look at the details of this text and then see where they take us. So Nicodemus knows, this is the first point, Nicodemus knows that he is representing all the Jews. He sees himself as the representative Israelite. He he knows that this is not just a conversation between him and Jesus, it's a conversation between Jesus and all the Jews, all of Israel. Look at verse 2 again. His first words to Jesus are, Rabbi, we. The first pronoun he uses is a plural, we. We know that you are a teacher from God. Who's the we? Back up in verse 1, it's the Jews over which he is a ruler. So in one sense, this is a conversation between Jesus and the Jews. Jesus even uses the plural form of you six times Throughout this conversation, for example, in verse 7, Jesus tells Nicodemus, Do not marvel that I said to you, you all must be born from above. He actually didn't say you all the first time. He just said you singular. But here he says, "Don't, don't marvel that I told you, you all must be born again. Because it was implied the first time that he wasn't just talking to Nicodemus. He's talking to all the Jews. He's talking about all the Jews in this conversation. 
all the Jews, the whole nation of Israel must be born from above. All of God's people must be born from above. So when Nicodemus asks those questions in verse four, he's not asking about physical birth. That's not the reference. He's talking about the nation of Israel. The man he's talking about is Israel, Jacob. Nicodemus knew his Bible, so he knew that Israel had already experienced one birth. This is clear in the Old Testament. He knew that, for example, that Exodus 4, verse 22, says that Israel is Yahweh's firstborn son. He knew that the book of Isaiah repeatedly says that God formed Israel in their mother's womb. I want want you to listen to these passages from Isaiah. Don't turn. Just listen. I'm going to read a half a dozen or so places in Isaiah, which John John echoes Isaiah in several other places in his gospel. So very likely this is what's going on. Certainly in my mind, that's just what's going on. Isaiah 44, 2. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. 46, verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me before, from before your birth, carried from the womb. This is all about Israel and, and Israel's birth from the womb. Chapter 49, verse 1. These are words to Israel. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. 49, verse 5. And now says the Lord, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. So this is Israel talking or God's servant talking. 49, verses 14 and 15. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. And and the Lord responds, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. And finally, verse chapter 66, verses 7 to 9. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth, God says, and not cause to bring forth? Says the Lord, shall I who caused to bring forth shut the womb? Says your God. This was all in the back of Nicodemus's mind. He, he knew these scriptures very well. So when Jesus tells Nicodemus that God's people, the Jews, need a new birth. Nicodemus's response, in essence, is to say, but haven't we already been born of God? Hasn't. Hasn't God already formed us in our mother's womb and given us birth? We're God's people. We're already God's son. We're already his children. We don't need anything else. Or or are you saying, Jesus, that God's firstborn son, Israel, must go back into his mother's womb? Be born a second time? Surely not. But you see, Nicodemus is confused because his spiritual eyes are blind. The eyes of his heart cannot see. 
That is not what Jesus is talking about at all. Jesus is not telling Nicodemus that that he and all the other Jews need to re-experience the old birth. The opposite of what he's saying. He's telling them that they need a new birth from above of water and spirit. And if Jesus had read or if Nicodemus had read the book of Isaiah with faith, he could have seen that even in those texts that he that are in the back of his mind. Before we get to that, though, look at Jesus response to Nicodemus in verses five to eight. Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. In verse 5, Jesus redefines from above as of water and spirit. He said born from above in verse 3, but then in verse 5, he changes it to born of water and spirit. Why does he do that? He's picking up on what Nicodemus is talking about. He knows what Nicodemus is talking about. And so he goes there and he's reminding Nicodemus that even in his own scriptures, they point to this new birth from above that is of water and spirit. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so we need to talk about this phrase, water and spirit. What does it mean? What is Jesus referring to? Most commentators throughout the history of the church have said that water here is a reference to baptism. Perhaps John's baptism and then ultimately points forward to Christian baptism, which Jesus Jesus would institute later. I, I don't think that's the best way to read this. I think baptism is secondary here. And I think we must see baptism here as an application of what Jesus is talking about. But when John uses water in his gospel, he usually is not referring to baptism. And an analogy for, for what I'm talking about here, in John 6... He talks about, he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. Okay, this was before Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. But he's telling them that if you want to abide in me, you'll eat my flesh and you'll drink my blood. Now, we recognize, we should, that that this points forward to the Lord's Supper. But at the time, the Lord's Supper had not been instituted. And what Jesus is talking about is a spiritual reality that underlies the the meaning of the Lord's Supper. He's talking about trusting in Jesus, putting faith in Jesus. That's what it means to eat of him and to drink of him here. And then later the Lord's Supper would be the sign that seals the promises and the salvation that we have in Jesus by trusting in him. When we eat and when we drink the bread and the wine, we are eating of Jesus' body and blood by faith. But there's a spiritual reality that underlies it that's primary. That's the same thing going on here in John 3 with this reference to water. 
the water does point forward to baptism. And there are places, for example, in Titus 3, where baptism and being renewed by the Holy Spirit go together. There's water and spirit in Titus 3, 5. The washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's an example where the sacramental reality and the spiritual reality are combined in the same sentence. But here, the emphasis is on what John means, what Jesus means by water in the rest of the gospel. In John's gospel, water and the Holy Spirit both evoke images of cleansing and new life, purification and eternal life. When John refers to water, he's referring to the living water. For example, in John 4, the very next chapter, when he refers to the spirit, he's referring to the spirit of life. And in John 7, water and spirit are even said to be the same thing. John seven thirty eight, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then verse 39 says, but he's but he said this concerning the spirit. In other words, the living water and the life-giving Holy Spirit are two ways of talking about the same spiritual reality. Jesus is referring to one birth here, not two. There's not, you're not born of water and then born of spirit. He's talking about one water and spirit birth. And it's a water and spirit birth prophesied in the Old Testament. The key is looking to the Old Testament. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 10, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? You don't know about this new birth? See, Israel's scriptures, the Old Testament, speaks of the need for God's people to be born of water and the Spirit. Look at Isaiah 44 in your handout. Isaiah 44, 1-3, is on the, it's on the left side of the handout, and God is speaking to Israel and God says in Isaiah 44, 1, you hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb. Okay, that's the that's the birth from the womb that Nicodemus knows about. Who will help you? Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Verse three, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants, and my blessing on your offspring. And then verse four, I don't have it in there, but verse four says they will spring up among the grass like willows by the streams of water. So in this passage, do you see how being born from the mother's womb is in the past and being born of water and spirit are in the future here in Isaiah 44? Nicodemus should have known this. If he had eyes to see, he would have. Should have realized that Jesus is not talking about re-entering that womb. Telling Nicodemus that the people of God formed in the womb of old are in need of a new birth. The new birth prophesied in Isaiah and Ezekiel. They need the water and spirit birth that God describes here. And in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. That's on the right side of the handout. Once again, God is speaking to his people. He says in Ezekiel 36, 25, Then I will 
sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's a good thing. It's not talking about the flesh that Paul's talking about. This heart of flesh is a good thing. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be and you will keep my judgments and do them. According to this passage from Ezekiel 36, when God pours his water and spirit on his people, he cleanses them from their sins and gives them new life, a new heart, new spirit. People who are born of God no longer have a heart of stone They have a heart of flesh. The heart of stone, you see, is a dead heart that is unfeeling and unresponsive to spiritual realities. It's not that the heart of stone can't feel. It has passions and desires. But toward the things of the Lord, it's a stone. It's dead. The heart of stone has no awareness of the glory of God. God and the truth of Jesus Christ. The things of the Lord are boring. But if you are born of God, then God has surgically removed your heart of stone that was dead. He's given you a heart of flesh that is soft and living and responsive. It's alive to the things of the Lord. It can feel and respond to spiritual realities. The eyes of that heart can see. Spiritual truths. And so God's children. You all, the children of God, us. We no longer have a dead stone or a heart. We have a living organ that loves God, that loves truth, that loves righteousness. Another way of saying this is that God makes his children New creatures. If anyone is in Christ, our epistle lesson said, he is a new creation. The old heart of stone is gone. It's passed away. Behold, the soft heart of flesh has come. You'll see in your handout that the language of water and spirit first shows up in the original creation in Genesis 1. The second half of Genesis 1-2 says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is new creation language that Jesus is talking about. The first creation involved water and Holy Spirit, and so does the new creation. If you've been born of water and the Spirit, you are a new creation. I'm going to close with Paul's words from Ephesians. Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4. Listen, Listen to God's word. And you... He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons, children of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved 
and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And from Ephesians 4, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your son, Jesus, and for making us your sons and daughters in Jesus, by faith in him. Thank you for uniting us to him by the faith you've given us and through the spirit you've put in us. Thank you for giving us new hearts and a new spirit. Give us the grace to continue to walk with you and in you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.